Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Dr. Henry Olson joins Roger for his second episode of the podcast. Henry is a Washington Post columnist and a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He is also the author of The Working Class Republican, Ronald Reagan and the Return of Blue Collar Conservatives, and he regularly speaks about political trends and global populism in the United States, Europe, and Australia. The two discuss a new poll Henry co-authored aimed at understanding Republican voters' priorities and preferences and how the GOP can overcome its internal divisions. If you enjoy the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Henry Olson, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. Well, uh, as our listeners and viewers know, you are uh, known for your remarkably accurate election predictions. Uh, 2016 was one I think uh, gave you the most attention. Uh, Of course, today we're going to talk about all the different uh, takeaways from November 2020, including some recent polling you've done. But first, give us your own assessment of yourself. How did you do in 2020? I wish I had done better. Um, I didn't do so badly at the presidential and the Senate level. I missed two states uh, that Biden uh, in the Biden-Trump race. I missed two states in the uh, senatorial race. Uh, I missed a lot of House races, and that was because the polling was massively off. There's not a single uh, person who predicted the House uh, takeover, uh, not takeover. Ke- Ke- Kevin House. McCarthy uh, was seeing something, wasn't he, or he just got lucky? He got lucky. I mean, I was looking at, you know, private Republican data that I saw was not any better than the public stuff that was being put out there. And, you know, I just think that all of that came together in the same way, which is that there are certain type of Republican Trump supporter that wasn't answering most polls, wasn't answering public polls, wasn't answering media polls, wasn't answering partisan polls either. So what that meant was people thought that the Democrats were in a stronger position than they actually were. Uh, but you know, below the house, above different from the House level, um, you know, pretty much in line, 49 of 51 states, you know, not too far off the popular vote, uh, two, only two of the Senate races missed. Uh, so I feel pretty good about that. So does it surprise you that kind of the down ballot shifted? Uh, uh, more than I think that the polls suggested uh, that, that you anticipated. And is this something we're likely to see again, Henry, or is this uniquely tied to an election where you have Donald Trump on the ballot? Well, I think when Donald Trump isn't on the ballot, what it suggests is there may be more support for a residual Republican party than there was for the Republican candidate, that it's very hard to look at these data and not say that there are people who, unlike in 2018, where they were punishing Republicans up and down the ballot, in 2020, there was much more distinction. There were people who voted Democratic for the presidential race, but voted Republican everywhere else. And that suggests a stronger showing for the party 
in 2022 than simply looking at the presidential figures would imply. So we'll get to some of that polling in a minute, but you know, some have said that what we saw was a dramatic political realignment. Uh, some people are saying now Republicans is, are the multiracial working class party. That's what Senator Rubio says. Um, Kevin McCarthy used the word working party, um, not the party of the affluent. Uh, is that what you're seeing in the, in the data? Uh, and, and is this good politics? Uh, yes and yes. Uh, the fact is that increasingly uh, people who with high who are highly educated and high uh, have high incomes are not open to the Republican message uh, that they view it as too socially conservative, too aggressive overseas, not concerned enough about redistribution or the environment. And even though they are not, these voters are not hardcore progressives, they are more comfortable in the center left than where their parents would have been, which is in the center right. So, uh, however, what it means is that there's people who haven't been doing as well, uh, and they would like a little bit more of that old time uh, economic and maybe even social religion. And that means that people whose parents, even with the exception of President Reagan, voted Democratic for most of the last 50 years, those people are now voting Republican and calling themselves Republican. And that is a, a very good sign for the party. They only need to get some of these suburban voters back in order to become the majority party. And that's something that's eluded the Republicans for a long time. What you've just described, is that inclusive of the working class party in the way that Kevin McCarthy has described it or the multiracial working class in the way that Senator Rubio, because you've talked about suburban voters, um, are those two ways of talking about the same set of people or, or not? Well, the, the, the Republican party is going to have to have its socioeconomic uh, gravitas uh, from the middle down. Historically, it had been from the middle up. But as I say, you know, the people from the middle up are not open to a Republican message as to the same degree. So whereas it used to be, you would start from the well-to-do suburbs and try and move down the socioeconomic ladder and get as many as you could get. What you'll be moving, seeing in the future is a Republican party that starts from slightly below the socioeconomic middle and moves up. And what that means is that it's much more amenable to working class non-white voters because that's where they are. Uh, the, a Republican party that starts from the leafy suburbs and tries to project that worldview into working class uh, neighborhoods uh, with the children of immigrants as their target has never really clicked. Uh, but a working class focus that then tries to reach upward to find similar mindsets in different localities, that can be a majority party. And that's what I'm hoping the party moves to is a multi-racial working class based party that is open to people of like mind uh, of higher economic and educational achievement. Well, I have to uh, highlight a book you wrote, which we discussed <laughs> the last time we're here. Um, the working class Republican got a lot of attention, actually blew up the Reagan world because uh, calling Reagan the, the a New Deal Democrat uh, certainly wasn't uh, what people were used to hearing. Um, this came out and you know, wrote in 2016, I think it was published in 2017. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know that what you've just said about the working class Republican, where you see it's going, where you think it uh, needs to go to be a majority 
uh, a party with a majority in the Congress, something you've been thinking about and writing about for, for years now. Yeah, I've been writing about it. And I'm in my 11th year of writing about it. Um, you know, eventually, if I keep writing about it, maybe it'll happen. I think it is beginning to happen. Where do minority um, voters fit in this? Because they, they, they make up uh, some uh, of, of that working class. Uh, a lot of attention, uh, Miami-Dade mm -hmm. uh, election, as well as Stark County, Texas. Um, is it that Trump did better than those expected or that it really reflects that these minority uh, communities are truly gravitating towards Republican policies like you were just hitting on? Well, what we know is that uh, it wasn't just in those places. Take a look at Ronald Reagan's backyard, Westminster, California, uh, working class suburb in uh, Orange County, massive shifts in the Vietnamese emigre community. Beverly Hills, which is now 25% Iranian, massive shifts in the Republican direction. Uh, so what you saw was it happening throughout the Hispanic and the Asian communities. And I think what it shows is two things. One is that Trump's brand of Republicanism was appealing to them. And second, they voted Republican up and down the ticket. They didn't just vote for Trump. They voted for the Republican candidates for Senate, for Congress, for state representative. And what that means is that at least in 2020, they viewed it as a partisan question. And we'll be have to see whether or not the party holds on to that without Trump at the top. I think it can, because I think there's a lot of things that a working class Republican message that has a foot in both camps with respect to the creation of wealth and the distribution of wealth is one that is exactly where the working class minority is. Uh, but that's really up to the party, whether they want to be there. And if they do, I think they'll find that these people will be very happy. In the I want to hit a, a few of those points and go into the, the new poll, which uh, you wrote about in the Washington Post uh, early February. Uh, but let's hit on one other very important demographic and one uh, that Republicans uh, have done really poorly uh, and that is on, on young voters. So, um, Henry, Republicans are not doing well in that 18 to 30 demographic across any measure. Is that is that right? And, and, and how does that fit it's in? It's largely right. But what you have to remember when you look at that, a lot of people in the party, when they think of the 18 to 30 year old demographic, they think of white college students. And it's certainly true that that's a problem for the Republican Party. But close to 60% of that demographic is non-white. And that group is very strongly not college educated. Over the years, what we will find as people age and their voting propensity goes up is that the white non-college voter who may not have voted in 2020, but uh, tends to start voting later than their college educated counterpart, they will come in. And what that means is that even in the 18 to 29 year old group, the way to get into this group is through a working class approach, not trying to appeal to that person who is the white college graduate who has spent four years of being indoctrinated by their professor. The way to approach the 18 to 29 year old vote is through the idea, uh, through the lens of somebody who's a high school graduate, could be the son of Mexican immigrants, could be the son of uh, people who's uh, emigrated here five generations ago in, in Wisconsin. But they want to hand up but they don't want to hand out. They want a job. 
and then they want government to get out of the way. And a Republican Party that can talk to that can find a way into the 18 to 29 year old set that they have not yet discovered. So uh, you, you just said it. they don't want a hand up, not a handout, right? Um, but their views on government aren't exactly views. I'm talking about this particular de demographic, the working class demographic is not a view that says we want small government or government to be out of the way. They, they actually view government as having a more substantial uh, important role mm -hmm. in our lives more than traditional uh, or establishment conservatives. Now, you, this is going into an argument you make in the Reagan book, right? Mm -hmm. That actually um, kind of pushes back on, on the role of government and, and, and felt that there's a big distinction between the New Deal and the Great Society in terms of the role of government. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but talk a little bit about that point, about where government fits in all this. If, if you know, conservatives will generally say, yes, you want a hand up, not a hand out, and everybody's going to nod on that. But then they'll, they'll start separating and disagreeing a little bit when you talk about, well, how does government do that? What's their role in realizing that? Yeah, you know, basically what a working class voter wants is they want help and protection. You know, a working class voter can't afford a lot of the things that upper middle class voters can afford. You know, they most parents couldn't afford to go to send their kid to a private school, even a parochial school. They need a strong public education system. They can't buy their way out of uh, urban or uh, declining uh, town uh, social problems. You know, so they need a strong police system. Uh, they uh, don't have the savings to be able to afford college on their own. They need a strong public education or public subsidy program. So these are things that they want and need that President Reagan, as governor and as president, understood and delivered. Um, they also are much likelier to depend on Social Security and Medicare for the entirety of their retirement uh, benefits rather than depend on a 401k uh, or some sort of private sector health care. So that again makes them much more likely to support a robust entitlement state. Doesn't mean that they wouldn't favor reform, but that they'll approach it more warily than perhaps the person who is better off. And so a Republican party that wants to talk to the working class needs to understand this and say that you know, they don't want just to be uh, given an opportunity to run as fast as they can in the free market race. They want to be able to be, you know, maybe if we to use a golfing analogy, they may not want to be at the championship tee. They may want to get a little bit closer to the hole, but they're perfectly happy to swing away to the best of their ability once they're in a position to the hole that they think they can reach. And that's where the Republican Party needs to go and where the Democratic Party really can't compete anymore because too many of the Democrats really do want hands-on government-directed, government-determined society. And you already see that with the way Joe Biden has to constantly be looking over his left shoulder in order so, to govern. So break that down a little bit more, and then we got to talk about this poll. Um, because what you've just done is set up the fault lines of the new division, right, between where the Democrats uh, and, and, and President Biden is going and, and, and those who left the President Biden versus where this working class Republican wants to go. That may not be familiar to everybody exactly what those fault lines are. Lay it out for us one more time in the key issue sets that really divide them because so much of what you described about, you know, public education, student loans, right? That would be stuff that for years, you know, Republicans were slow to get to, frankly. Uh, and uh, particularly, you know, whether it's student loans and, and, and whether it's forgiveness 
or, or relying on uh, lending institutions, private lending institutions, right? It was my recollection, the Democrats badgering Republicans on those issues. You're, you're, you're articulating a shift there. Talk about the, the fault line. Yeah, I think the fault line, the Republicans have to understand that uh, we can compete effectively and winningly with Democrats if we offer generous help to people who need it. What Democrats tend to do is offer help to people who don't need it. Uh, to witness the $2,000 COVID checks. Uh, because they're not targeting into whether you've lost your job, they're going to be sending thousands of dollars to upper middle class families that frankly will do nothing with it except for spend it on a vacation or put it in the bank account. And people who may need more than $2,000 because they've been out of work for seven months won't get it. Uh, a Republican approach would say, be generous with the people who need it and be stingy with the people who don't. Why is means testing so controversial? That's what you're describing right now. You're simply I'm saying- I'm describing means testing. I'm describing condition testing. In this case, you know, yeah, I, I don't understand why we're using 2019 income rather than 2020 employment status. You know, it's not like we're six weeks out of the pandemic. I mean, come on, we know who's been unemployed. So, so by that you mean is that we the means testing should look at how people were doing post the pandemic hitting us as opposed to looking how they were doing prior to the pandemic. That's exactly right. You know, and it doesn't strike me as, you know, it, at most this is a mechanical administration problem. Uh, but what we need, we should have been focusing on this as Republicans for months and putting out a clear message, help to people who need it, not help to people who don't. And All then, right, I want to play a game here real yeah, quick sure. before we get your poll. So I, I keep on teasing out this poll and then I don't jump to it because <laughs> the conversation is so interesting. But here's the game. All right. Play the role of the traditional political consultant. Right. The person who's advising that senator, that congressman, maybe even that presidential candidate. And let's just say the, the candidate is like totally digging Henry Olson. They looked at the poll. They look how you got it right in 2016, how you got still got a lot right in 2020. But the political consultant's like, that's not who we are. That's not how we get elected. Show me the evidence that this is how we become majority party. The tried and true. Right. Is the establishment approach that got, you know, I don't know, Bush. 41, 43, and he would have gotten, you know, Trump in, in 2020 if he just would have disciplined himself a bit. What, what does that debate look like? What, what, what's the critique of what you're saying here? Why the people who won't internalize kind of the shift to the working class party uh, that you think is so critical Republicans ought to make? There's a couple of critiques. One of them is frankly ideological, you know, which is that this is new. I mean, it's not really new, it's actually old. I'm bringing you back to a Republican party that once existed and actually did better than the current Republican party. But it is something that is hard for people to hear. And Ronald Reagan himself said in 1964, describing Barry Goldwater's defeat, that people resist change and they bend over backward to avoid radical change. And for some people, what I'm proposing is radical change. So I expect they'll bend over backwards. Some of it is a different interpretation of, uh, of data. And uh, I've heard from Republican consultants, yeah, those blue, you might've been right a few years ago, but now those blue collar voters are so Republican, they hate Democrats. We actually don't need to offer them economic stuff. They'll just vote with us anyway. And my argument is no, that they won't, you know, that if you want to recreate the old fault lines, you'll get the old voting habits. And that, uh, 
fighting a culture war with the blue collar and fighting an economic battle for the middle class, which is what they're basically proposing, is uh, I think ultimately self-defeating. But like um, someone like Nikki Haley, right, who has mm -hmm. been out there swinging away at anybody who dares to uh, challenge market fundamentalism, right, and having government uh, interfere with the market, and you know, basically, it's it's almost what is it? It's it's a Trojan horse, I think, is is the most popular one for socialism. Um, you just swat that as away as kind of just you know hyperbole or you know, is this really, is there a legitimate concern that this, that this undermines the, the free market? Well, there's always a legitimate concern. I don't want to swap it away, uh, but that's why Republicans need to own it rather than respond to it. I mean, I think Haley is betraying a serious lack of uh, political judgment and also a serious lack of understanding. You know, that her, her video for PragerU that just came out talked about how uh, Sweden and Norway and those countries aren't socialist countries, despite what the Democrats say. They're just capitalists with a big welfare state. Well, okay, if that's the case, this is these are places that spend 45 to 50 percent of national uh, of GDP on government programs, compared to 31 to 35 percent in the United States. If they're capitalists too, the, I think the logical answer is, well, why can't we have the welfare state? And there's no answer to that because it's not a serious proposal. You know, that the answer to that is that what the Scandinavian welfare states do is smother initiative and create too big of a blanket. What they do is they create um, uh, universal programs for people who don't need it. Well, it goes and, back to critique of the democratic left. Which goes, well, what, that's exactly, well, the Scandinavian welfare state was built by the left wing. It was built by social democratic parties in every single one of those countries. And even the center right in those countries only chip away at it a little bit or reduce taxes a little bit. They operate within the contours that was built by 40 years of dominance by the social democratic party. And so if what you want to do is say, well, welfare state is not a problem because it's not capitalism, well, then you have no answer to most of the Democrats' big government overbroad mandatory entitlement programs because they can just drag up your old speech and say, all we want is 50% of what Sweden has. And you said that was capitalism. You've just thrown away your whole argument but, but, because you but, don't understand what you're talking about. Well, I mean, setting aside uh, uh, Nikki Haley's print review <laughs> speech was clearly uh, got your attention. Uh, coming back to, to, to this point, I, I think conservatives generally are wary of giving the government a mandate even do the things you're talking about because they just feel it results in more bureaucracy, less efficiency. And even you could apply all the means testing you want, in the end, the people who need it won't get it. That's a general bias of conservatives and why they don't want to look to Washington or any state capital for a solution. That's the hard part to, to, to really, on a policy level, to get Republicans to buy into. Yeah, well, I think part of it is the, the fact is Republicans have been grudgingly buying into it for the last 70 years that go into Texas, you know, and, you know, you think of Texas as this low spending, big conservative state. Well, you know, they've got welfare programs, they've got Medicaid, they've got targeted means tested programs, they've got a big public sector uh, university system, just like everybody else. And so what you have to do is accept that seems to be what Republicans want. 
that Republicans voters like these things that provide some measure of security and upward uplift of opportunity. And so the question then becomes, okay, what should it look like as opposed to the Democrats built it, we'll grumble about it, but then we'll mainly keep it intact without doing many substantive changes. I think a genuine Republican welfare state would serve more people at a lower cost because we'd actually do things like target, uh, you know, not re reward public universities for enrollment and then have 80% of their students drop out uh, within four years, as so many of these public universities do. Why should they be rewarded for failure? Better managers of, of government programs, but I, I think- Well, better, but serious managers. I mean, this is the thing is that a lot of times Republicans have said, well, we'll be better managers, but to be managers, you have to decide what product lines you're in or not, and you have to be willing to do hard things. All too often, what they do is gloss over those problems, do a little bit of tweaking on production or procurement or something, and say, "Well, we're you know we've saved you one you know, five tenths of one percent. Isn't that better management? Who cares? Honestly, who cares?" Yeah, which reinforces the point of conservatives who are just skeptical of government, even even the government run by conservatives. I mean, you look at the debt and deficit, Henry, right? And you look at the Trump years, and we we haven't hit on that piece of it, but. Anybody who was a fiscal hawk surely didn't have a voice or lost their voice over the four years of, of President Trump, right? I mean, this is the type of thing that drives conservatives crazy. Yeah, I think one thing that conservatives, you know, one thing conservatives just have to recognize is that the hardcore conservative is not a majority, even within the Republican Party, much less in the country as a whole. So the question is, how do you want to navigate in a world of compromise? rather than how do you want to lay down a marker and consequently turn off people who you could ally with. Ronald Reagan talked about this uh, often, about the need for compromise to bring in and not to uh, alienate. And particularly in the most important speech he ever gave that people tend not to look closely at, his 1977 speech to CPAC called the New Republican Party. It was all about rejecting ideology, accepting compromise, and finding a way to create a new Republican Party of a majority, which he said would have not just room for, but be run by the cop on the beat, the grocer, the housewife, all of those people who are generally considered ordinary working class Americans. So you jumped to our lightning round by telling us the most important Reagan speech. We'll go back and unpack that a little bit later. But let's talk about what you're seeing right now about Republican voters, uh, the think tank that you're affiliated with, uh, Ethics and Public Policy Center, partnered with uh, the polling firm YouGov, uh, and really looked at uh, these questions of who the Trump voter is, and the conclusion is there is no singular Trump voter. Uh, outline that for us uh, uh, for a couple of minutes here, Henry. Yeah, it was a 1,000 1, people who said they voted for Trump in 2020. And what it showed was some remarkable things. Uh, it showed a lot of unity with respect to patriotism, with respect to cultural issues, with respect to uh, support for the Second Amendment, with a strong supermajority of people who are pro-life in the Trump coalition, want conservative judges. And it showed roughly 50-50 splits on serious economic questions, that trade is viewed by um, a majority as costing American jobs, uh, and it's uh, between, uh, keeping trade as is or cutting trade. Uh, it, it, there's a significant number of people who want to reduce trade. You take a look at- It's called foreign trade. I mean, as if like 
where right. we're the, the alternative is just trading amongst ourselves between California and, I don't know, Utah. Right. I, I, I say foreign trade because, you know, to make it clear that we're talking about trade uh, uh, among people from other countries. Um, but you take a look, there's strong support for immigration control, but the thing that unites them the most is not building the wall, although that was also strongly supported, but requiring employers to check the uh, immigration status or the citizenship status of a person before they get hired. You know, that American jobs should go for American workers, whether you're an American citizen or here legally to work in America. Legal workers. Uh, and th th then you had a lot of division. You had 45% uh, of Trump voters think that the government should provide, ensure that the people have a minimum standard of living if people work to the best of their ability. Over 63% say that they would prefer keeping future social security benefits the same as they are now, even if that means payroll taxes go up. Uh, the question of Medicare, 55% say they care most about controlling the cost of Medicare, but 45% say they care most about ensuring that a senior citizen gets the health care they need, regardless of the cost to the rest of us. Certainly not establishment orthodoxy in these. That's these right. That's right. And A, there's two things to draw from this. One is that support for these supposedly unorthodox positions is strong throughout the Trump movement, that even among self-described very conservatives, you have substantial minorities taking the more liberal position, and that the Obama Trump voters, the 20 to 30% of the Trump coalition who voted for President Obama in 2012, were much more liberal than the standard Republican voter. So this gets to my point is that if you want to be a hardline conservative and say, we've already gone too far with government, we need to go in the other direction, what you're talking about is subtracting from a Trump coalition that's already a minority. And I think that that's not really a good place to go. If you want to- How big is, the, how big is uh, the pool of voters who didn't vote for Trump, but they are otherwise conservative? So the, my understanding of the poll, no, they're not relevant. No, I mean, there are people who didn't vote for Trump who are Republicans. Um, you know, people who voted for Biden or people who voted third party or people who skipped, you know, those people need to come back. But if what you're doing is saying, okay, we're going to take these people back and we're going to kick out some of these first time or second time Republicans because they're just too liberal for us. We're just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. We're taking one 47% coalition, which isn't enough to win the presidency and creating a different 47% coalition, which isn't enough to win the presidency. We need to add, bring back these conservatives and keep these new voters rather than try and just add by subtracting, adding by subtracting. Anything surprise you in this poll? Because a lot of what you're describing right now that you found in this, in this uh, poll lines up with what we were talking about beginning this conversation. Sounds mm -hmm. like you knew this even before the data arrived at your desk. Well, I suspected it. Uh, with respect to the economic. Uh, in one sense, I was surprised at how conservative the Obama-Trump voter was, in the sense that I expected even larger majorities for the liberal position. Um, I think the thing, though, that surprised me the most is the degree of cultural uniformity, that there's really those, not- Those 90% categories that, you're, that, that come in the Those 90 or those 80% categories, yeah. you know, that, and this is where there's not a whole lot of difference between Obama-Trump voters and, uh, and Romney-Trump voters. Uh, you, you know, the, they 90 percent believe America is the greatest country in the world and that Americans are losing, losing faith in the ideas that made this country great. That's right. Now, if, if I had asked Biden voters, uh, I know from other polls that many fewer 
strong Democrats say America is the greatest country. They might say America is a great country or one of the great countries or used to be a great country. But you would not find it's what is a common truism among Republicans is not among Democrats. So the fact that there is virtually no difference between former Democrats and staunch Republicans on that question means something. It means that this is is something that divides them from the new Democratic Party. How do you take that and make that work for you in a campaign? Does that mean you have to get people to rally around the flag and, 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 you know, kind of civics and, you know, the history of the country, or does it mean you have to go negative on the other side and say, that's the party that, you know, want that, you know, doesn't stand for our founding principles? Well, I'm at, I'm teaching a course on statesmanship right now, looking at the rhetoric of Lincoln, Roosevelt and Reagan and what they did in each case was both, which is to say, Lincoln articulated from the Declaration of Independence what American freedom meant and cast and castigated the other side for not following it. Roosevelt interpreted his New Deal through a unique way of interpreting the American founding and castigated his other side, the, you know, the, 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 the Republicans as being outside of that understanding. You can't do one or the other. You must do both. Did President Trump do both? Uh, President Trump didn't do enough on the positive side. Enough. It's been a failing of the president uh, throughout his career is that he is excellent at slash and burn, but is not so good at uh, growing uh, the land that he's conquered. Tell us about the the, the climate change threat in that poll. That that was that was kind of interesting. Um, you know, climate change, you're right, is real. Um, and and they, that belief that climate change is real is surprisingly prevalent mm-hmm. among Trump voters. But at the same time, uh, there are 49% are climate change deniers, or you might only 49% are climate change deniers, which is, uh, I, I, thought, so I don't know if you did that with any sense of irony when you wrote that. But it seems to be divided over that issue. Well, only 49% among very conservatives who are a minority. It was 34% among the total poll. Um, so I was trying to do when I said that is that even among the most conservative of people, 50% say that climate change is real. I, that was another question that surprised me. I wanted to know because, you know, what happens with most polls is they're written by the left. So they create a dichotomy that represents the way the left wants to see things. So then you force Republicans to make decisions that they wouldn't make. Give me an example. Um, well, one example is on immigration is that you always hear they always get forced into citizenship versus deportation, as if these are mutually exclusive options, as if there aren't other ways that we can deal with the 11 million amongst us by different statuses, family statuses, residency statuses. Do you have children who were born here? You know, there are millions of things, but they throw everything together and they force to say, well, you have to either want to throw them all back or you have to give them citizenship status. And of course, a lot of people who may not want to give them citizenship status will say that because the- Given those choices, I'm gonna So those are false choices, but the left does that all the time. So with climate change, what I did was I I gave three choices. I said, climate change is not real and government should do nothing. Climate change is real and the government should really get involved. And the third option was climate change is real, but private uh, and uh, that the new technology uh, fun, you know, supported green by jobs. Government. Not necessarily green jobs in the way the left means it, because uh, but um, jobs that you know, techno innovation that right. can support new jobs, but not this. You know, what the left wants to do is basically use 
climate change as a way to impose socialism. It's the typical watermelon policy, green on the outside, socialist red on the inside. Um, and and, and, and you know, what we should be doing is saying, look, we don't need to control every facet of human life for climate change. What we need to do is innovate our way out of it. And that means, yeah, maybe we need some government support. Maybe we need to nudge private industry in a particular direction. But ultimately, the only solution is going to be technological. And that's where over a majority of Trump supporters were. They said climate change is real, but these technological things that we can discover with maybe some government help can mitigate its worst effects. And what that gives is a language for Republicans to talk about climate change that is neither denialist nor socialist. And that's where we need to be. It is the climate change version of the argument I've been making on the economy is that there's the distinction. You don't have to be put into a nothing or everything binary choice. You can be somewhere else that's authentically conservative, authentically rooted in American ideals that's not simply hands-off libertarianism. Um, tell us about those polls here. So 1,000 people were polled. Uh, demographics of those 1,000, geographic distribution, ethnicity, any, any details on that? Yeah, they were, I, I think they were like 84, 80 to 85% white. So it was a largely white uh, group. Uh, but, you know, not insignificantly non-white. You know, if you're talking about 15% or so of the Trump coalition, you're talking about 7 or 8% of the American people. Um, I think uh, it was also one that was, um, you know, significantly working class. We asked people social class. And um, the, there was a significant group that was said they were working class or poor. And a majority of the Obama-Trump voters. I think 57% of the Obama-Trump voters described themselves as working class or poor. Uh, so it, it was definitely not your- uh, If you pull the thread on that 15%, uh, what surprised you most in terms of what they told you? You know, I didn't run a, I didn't look specifically at them because there's so many differences between ethnic groups. Sure. Um, and uh, no one of them rose to a large enough number that I could be confident uh, of, of uh, that I was getting a good read on the subgroup. Um, so I did not look at the 15. Do you think more work ought to be done there as you hear people like Marco Rubio talking about the multiracial working class? I think it would, you know, I have, I may have opportunities to do future polls and, and may very well be that I go there. But yes, you know, if I were, if I had somebody, if I were- Is that the place to go given the governing majority you're talking about? There are two places to go. You have to learn how to hold and increase your support among discrete, among minority groups. And you can't lump them all together. You have to- have a large enough sample size that you can distinguish between groups of Asians or groups of Latinos, because they're going to be different depending on their life experiences and where they come from. You also have to take a look at the person who um, uh, isn't committed to the Democratic Party, maybe voted for Romney and McCain, uh, maybe even voted for Republicans for governor in 2018. You know, like there's a lot of people in Arizona who voted for Doug Ducey for governor and Kristen Sinema for Senate. Right. You, what you need to do is get into those people and say, okay, where is the overlap? You know, you, you may be that you have to give some of these people up in order to get the larger pie of getting into the minority community. But where I would be going right now, if I had unlimited dollars, is doing really deep dives into these groups and saying, okay, here are the issues. Here's the- uh, the, the People the who shift down ballot, not the ones who go straight down. 
uh, RRD. Right. Look, you know, Biden got 51, 52% of the vote. Um, and we know that all of those people are not died in the wool Democrats, you know, maybe 40 or 45% are. Well, let's take a look at that eight, 12% of the total electorate uh, who might be uh, open to voting for a Republican. Who are those people? What do they believe? What is it that made them decide to vote for Biden? How many of them have voted Republican in the past? Learning about these people is crucial to building the multiracial, multi-class, or multiracial working class base, but has you know strong support outside of the working class. What so we I got envision is an American version of like what the British Conservative Party is becoming. That used to be. Well, even in the Thatcher years, the British Conservative Party built from the top, you know, from the upper class out. And, you know, basically they would win when they would run even among the semi-skilled working class, but they would still do worst among the unskilled working class. With Boris Johnson, it's flipped. They run strongest among the working class and least well among the upper class. But because of the way uh, they elect their system, they can get roughly the same share of the vote as Thatcher and get more seats because of where these people live. Fascinating. And that's what, that's the vision that we need to be looking at. So uh, we have a few minutes left. I wanna focus on another division within the party, not one about working class uh, versus elites, but the division between those support President Trump and stuck with him after January 6th and those that have not. What is your take and takeaway from how we'll focus on the House uh, Republican conference uh, have dealt with uh, the aftermath of the insurrection, uh, the uh, presence of Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, Liz Cheney's uh, position as uh, conference chair being challenged? Where did that all fit into you're talking about uh, of what, what are the kind of elements of, a, of, of the Republican Party becoming a majority party? You know, the, the thing is that both of these sides need the other. Uh, the people who are disappointed in President Trump need the people who strongly support him. And the people who strongly support him need the people who reluctantly supported him and now are disappointed in him. There's no majority without these two sides getting together. And if they want to fight a bloody war, the only people who will benefit are the left. Because whether it's in a primary or whether it's in a general election or a new political party or all the things that are getting talked about, if the right divides, the left triumphs. And so people have to ask themselves, are the differences that we have with these people so great that we're willing to let the hard left come to power in America? Or do we have to actually think about how to get along? I think we should be thinking about how to get there. Yeah, clearly, that's where you're you're going. You know, the, the uh, former President Trump, uh, you know, remains to be seen what kind of presence he has. And uh, from reporting, he seems to be very focused on uh, addressing grievances within the party and not focusing on uh, becoming a majority party. The best example of that, which of course is prior to January 6th, is Georgia. And the fact that Republicans are not a majority in the US Senate. Uh, many believe, I don't know if you share this view, uh, go ahead and sh uh, let us know, because people were delegitimizing the vote on the election, questioning uh, that it was uh, that what happened in Georgia, that um, Biden won Georgia, uh, then it led Republican voters not to vote 
in, in the Senate race because, you know, the system was rigged. That uh, was a significant factor in the defeat. It was certainly not the only factor in the defeat. The Democrats increased their uh, uh, turnout uh, and, and held their vote very well. But, you know, I had President Trump accepted defeat and said, okay, but let's go and win one for the Gipper. Let's hold the Senate uh, and hold back. Um, it's very possible that at least David Perdue could have won. That was a very close race. It wouldn't have taken very many minds to shift, and it wouldn't have taken very many additional new voters to, who voted in the presidential race to vote again in the runoff. So yes, President Trump's behavior and that of people around him arguably cost the Republicans control of the Senate uh, because of what you said, settling grievances rather than trying to build a majority. So you wrote another piece uh, in the, uh, late January on uh, a race in Arkansas. Uh, in some respects, you, you didn't use this language, but somewhat of a bellwether uh, for what uh, Republican races will look like. This is the gubernatorial race where uh, President Trump's former spokesperson, Press Secretary Sarah Sanders, entered the race as a bid for governor. Um, why did you focus on Arkansas and and what were you, what is almost the metaphor coming out of what you're seeing there? Yeah, well, the thing is that, uh, but for her service on behalf of President Trump, Sarah Sanders Huckabee would be considered to be a minor candidate in the race. She had never run for office before. She is the daughter of the former Arkansas governor, but Mike Huckabee hasn't been governor there for over a decade. But a very big Fox News presence. Uh, very big, well, that's the thing is she wouldn't be a nobody, but she wouldn't be the person who was getting national headlines. And she clearly was built, uh, her announcement was focused on attacking the left and the incoming she took from the press every day, fighting for Arkansas values and fighting for President Trump. And so it'll be interesting to see whether or not that alone is going to be enough to elect her governor, because whoever wins the primary is going to be the governor. One of her opponents has already dropped out of the race, the lieutenant governor, which yeah, leaves her one-on-one -on -one with the Republican attorney general. And uh, you know who knows? The race is uh, over a year away. There may not even be a serious challenger. And that would be a sign that somebody with strong Trump credentials can basically push out sitting office holders uh, who have their own strong bases uh, simply because of their connection to the president, and that would be well, right. And, and this is this is Arkansas, not Ohio. So it's you know, Arkansas probably in the union is one of the most red, most Trump Trumpy states. But you know, I read your piece, and it wasn't just about can you win with a Trump endorsement and good Trump bona fides. It was also you're making a commentary on the way you win. I mean, you talked about how she's speaking, and 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 this is not winning by addition, uh, this in terms of what I read. Tell me more about that. Well, you know, what she's running is she's running against the left. Uh, you know, she's running against the left, running national issues, culture war issues, and only tangentially talking about, you know, oh, public policy, like tax cuts or school vouchers. That's like fourth or fifth and given short shrift in her announcement video. You know, and that suggests that that is where Republican voters are right now, you know, which is, you know, Sarah Sanders can 
uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, not the other way around. Sarah, I, I misspoke. And you know, Sarah Sanders, uh, you know, she she knows how to read polls. She was a political consultant before she became press secretary. So I'm sure that what she's doing is saying that for the Republicans or Republican voter, they're more interested right now in fighting the left and fighting about uh, the definition of what it means to be American than they do about public policy. Do you and, agree with that? Because a lot of what we've talked about today is is this politics by addition, by what we're going to be for, not what we're against. Yeah, I think that there may be a lot of Republican voters who want to be against, but they're not going to win a national election unless they're also for. So you can win in Arkansas, but you can't win in a purple state, nor can you win a national election. Exactly. Thank you for summing it up better than I was going to. Um, well, uh, we should just leave it there. That was great. Uh, but actually, there was one last line in that um, piece before we uh, go to our lightning round, which I thought was super interesting, but I kind of was asking for more when now I have the opportunity to ask just that. You said, well, Trump's endorsement looms large, but you said that might be premature. Trump looks strong amongst Republican voters now, but that might not be the case on May 24th, 2022. That date's relevant to this piece because that's when the primary is scheduled to take place. What do you think is going to happen between now and, and, and May 2022 that, that would really make, you know, kind of put Trump's influence, um, kind of less, make it less significant? We don't know, but that's the thing is we always have, to, you know, this is what Don Rumsfeld called a non, known unknown. We don't know what Donald Trump is going to say and do in the next 17 months. We don't know whether or not any of these state and federal criminal investigations into his uh, wrote this after decision. January 6th, where you know, this is he was impeached by the House, he the, the, the Senate is on trial before the Senate. I mean, what more could happen that would you know reduce his influence? I think people know who he is and stand by him or don't stand by him. Well, people do know who he is, but the other thing is for the last five four years, as by virtue of the president, anything he said was world news. By virtue of the fact that he was president, he really was the person who stood between uh, you know, what many Republicans would say are the liberal barbarians and the gates of America. And he's no longer president. And there will be other people who will be making those claims. And we will see whether or not when Trump is taking on uh, new issues or taking on other Republicans that he still seems as fresh and as new. And as there'll obviously be people who love him to death. He's not going to go from where he is to zero, but the question is, is he going to go from a towering figure to an influential figure? Or will something come out with respect to his business that uh, makes people think a little bit less? I mean, when I you would still be shocked, I would assume, that the Trump-endorsed candidate in a state like Arkansas doesn't win, correct? Um, Trump has endorsed candidates in statewide primaries before who have lost. He endorsed Luther Strange against Judge Roy Moore in 2017, and Judge Roy Moore beat Luther Strange. His endorsement helps, but it is not an automatic. Luther uh, Strange didn't exactly have, uh, yeah, well, it's not apples to apples, let's say, with Sarah Huckabee Sanders. No, it's not. But then again, it's also not apples to apples with respect to uh, the fact that he, she's going to be running against a, another woman, not a man, uh, who also has a, a statewide record. Um, and we don't know how Sarah Sanders is going to be on the campaign trail. 
And it's one thing to be able to stand up for 45 minutes and take uh, short questions from a hostile audience. It's quite another thing to be able to think and speak on your feet um, about a number of things. And a lot of times people do fine. And a lot of times people mess up. And as it's kind of like you go back to 2012, and it sure looked like Richard Murdoch, who had beaten uh, Senator Dick Luger in a Republican primary, was going to be the next senator. And then he gets a question about abortion on live debate in the last type week of October, and he completely muffs it and loses the race. You never know how somebody's going to perform under pressure until they're under pressure. And being you yourself is different than being a press secretary. Fair points. Let's go to our lightning round. It's always so much fun and interesting to talk to you, Henry Olson. Um, this is where we ask, normally we ask favorite book, quote, speech by President Reagan or President Reagan, of course, our favorite book for today's show on President Reagan is The Working Class Republican. Uh, and since you've done that, answered that before, uh, for this lightning round, why don't you just tell us, given the environment that we spent so much time talking about today within the Republican Party, in the country. Uh, is there a particular Reagan quote, speech, or, or insight that you think is most appropriate for this moment? So I will give three very quickly um, that interlock with one another. One is the 1977 CFAC speech, where he talked about how to build a new Republican Party, how to create a majority that was not ideological, and how why it was so important to resist the temptation to be lockstep ideological. That's must reading for current day because it shows how people have to get along and, and, and build a majority together rather than insisting on purity. The second is his epitaph uh, that he, his epitaph uh, at his grave says, man, I know in my heart that man is good, that what is right will eventually triumph and that there is purpose and worth to each and every human life. Too often, I think we forget that. And we think that the person who's down on their luck deserves to be down on their luck and that they don't have the individual human dignity that can respond well to compassion. Ronald Reagan understood that. And I think when we understand it, we'll be in a position to better build the majority. And the third is a speech he gave uh, on October 12th, 1988, one of his last speeches. He was in uh, New Jersey, on Columbus Day talking to Italian Americans. And in the middle of the speech, he's campaigning for George Herbert Walker Bush. He talks about how you and I, I was once a former Democrat, I'm a former Democrat, you and I loved the party of Roosevelt and Truman. And people say that party doesn't exist anymore. He said, I'm gonna tell you something I've never said before. When the left took over the Democratic Party, um, uh, the party of Roosevelt and Truman didn't die we left and took over the Republican Party. We are now the party of Roosevelt and Truman and the worker. Ask yeah. yourself whether or not you can really look at today's Republican Party pre-Trump and say that people believed that. And I think when we can say that's what Reagan intended, that's our unfinished business, we need to be that party, that's when we can be a majority party. Always thoughtful and provocative, Dr. Henry Olson. It was a pleasure having you on the show and we look forward to having you back again in the not too distant future. Thank you very much. I always love chatting with you.